I assume you can be seated. <laughs> Though if we were in the Old Testament, maybe it'd be the whole... Do you guys do you usually get down? I'll step down. <laughs> I'm tall enough. I think most of you can see me in the back. Um, thanks for bringing Patty and I up for this weekend. It's been a, a joy to be with you. It's been encouraging to... Um, I guess, reacquaint ourselves with many. I was blessed to be here for the state lectureship about a month ago, and I, I thought that went really well. was thankful for uh, Billings kids in Great Falls last weekend as we had our youth rally there. It was great to see a, a number of, of faces that uh, hadn't seen for a while. We had about 75 kids at the youth rally, so it was a good, good number. I, I think coming out of COVID, everybody's sort of excited to actually see people again and be able to fellowship with one another. Today, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to stay in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we'll begin in Mark 8, where that was left off. But I, I just, again, say thanks for the opportunity. And I'm encouraged by the church here. And may the Lord continue to be with you and bless you. got something for you to, to ponder here for a second. And that is... What do you see with this image? How many see a young lady? Let's see a show of hands. Okay. How many see an older woman? Show of hands. <laughs> I see some head shaking. I don't see that. Don't see. There, there, it is the same information, but people can have the, a different perspective with the same information. So, the, the young lady, her, her chin, okay, looking at it, this, look on the left, the, the dark on the bottom, that's the bottom of her chin, and then it comes up and you see her nose and the feather on top. The older lady, the, the white part, all the way down to the bottom, and I don't know if this will, oh yeah, okay, so this is the bottom of the chin for the older lady, here's her nose that comes up. Um, and then you see your eye there. So the younger lady, this is, there's her nose, there's the chin, and it comes down. Same, same information can be looked at by the same crowd, and you come to a different perspective. It shouldn't surprise us, and I see some trying to explain it there. Um, you guys will have the PowerPoint, you can go back and look at it and explain it, however, but... It shouldn't surprise us that even as we've worked through this weekend, people who are looking at the same information have a little bit different perspective. It also shouldn't surprise us that as people walked with Jesus and saw what was going on, they might not have the same perspective of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to do today is we're going to look at a biblical text and we're going to see how Mark uses it through here and what Jesus is using it for. And then the last part will be about us, about the perspectives we have about our own life. And so it was read that these 12 were basically, they were meant to be with Jesus. That's where it starts. When he calls the 12, he says, hey, I, I want you to be with me. And so they are. I mean, they, they see all sorts of things. They they see that Jesus has power over demons, and, and he's got power over the deep. He's able to walk on water. He's got power over disease, and he actually even has power over death. They, they're with him, and they see that, and yet, when they get in this boat, as the text was read, 
both sides at the beginning at the end. Jesus says, don't, don't you understand? I mean, he talks about the two times that he fed 5,000 and 4,000. Uh, didn't you see it? Didn't you hear? Don't you remember? Don't you understand what was going on? It shouldn't surprise us that when we see Jesus, we spend time with Jesus. There's actually some work that needs to be done on our part to really understand what God's involved in our lives. And so, what happens here in the Gospel of Mark is we have a man who is healed, and I seem, am I supposed to jump? There, there we go. Uh, a man that's healed in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to read this text. Mark 8, beginning in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, he, and on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go, even go into the village. And just a couple of things. It's obvious that this man had seen before because he knew what trees looked like. So he's gone blind later in life and he, he's healed here. But it took a second touch by Jesus. There is another miracle of a man being healed in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Now this man who is blind in Mark 10 actually calls out Jesus, son of David. He seems to know, even though he can't see, who Jesus is. And there's a good probability that Mark is using a literary tool here, that he is using this, this man that needs a second touch to be able to see clearly, and then the healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 10, as if you would think of it as a sandwich of, of two loaves of bread, that there's material, there's some meat in the inside of this that we really need to dig out. There's, there's something that Mark is going to be highlighting in this that he wants his hearers to understand. And what happens in this is there are three times where Jesus will make a death prediction, there will be a misunderstanding by his people, and then he's got to make a clarification. And we'll see that in Mark 8, we'll see it in Mark 9, and then we'll see it again in Mark chapter 10. But I want us to go to the first of these. I want us to go to Mark chapter 8 and read and see this progress as it goes through. So Mark chapter 8, what's happened is we're at a pivotal point in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus asked who the people say I am, and he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter makes that great proclamation, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the King. And so Jesus is going to use, and we're just going to look at one as an example, he's going to help his disciples who have the same information, maybe look at that information in a new way, the way that Jesus wants them to see it. Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 31. Remember, Peter has just said, you're the Christ, you're the King. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. So what we see very clearly from the very beginning, there is a death prediction. He, he, he said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise in three days. But we then see a misconception, because 
what we pick up with is good old Peter, who's going to be growing throughout his life. In verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That didn't fit. He had the same information that the rest of the disciples had. He had, didn't have the same information that Jesus had, but he'd seen all these things about Jesus. And he says, no, you, you dying, that's, that, that's not the way it's supposed to go. And so now what we'll see is there's a clarification. 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And so there's this clarification, and maybe just some of the things that we would understand as clarification as we read the text, is recognize that Satan's very much involved in trying to mess up what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It shouldn't surprise us when we're trying to be involved, we're trying to figure out what God is calling us to do, that Satan's going to try to get in there and mess things up. We are in a spiritual battle. Satan is a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. We are in a spiritual battle, Ephesians chapter 6. He is real. He's looking for people to devour. He's looking for people to destroy. In fact, all of us who are Christians, we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We were there at one point. And we've been rescued and God has brought us into a relationship. So in a clarification, one of the things to just think about is we're in a spiritual battle. And, and each emotion and each feeling and each thing, we, we need to evaluate what, how does that fit with what God's called in our lives. But then also a clarification, if, if we're to follow, we have a cross. We, we have a, a death appointment. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think why Jesus says you need to deny yourself and you need to take up your cross and the idea of a cross was where you died and follow him is because we will not by nature follow where Jesus wants us to go if self still rules. Because Jesus is going to call us into places that by nature we don't like. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you can't be at the center of your throne of your life anymore. That's something that you deny. I'm the king. So when you deny yourself, you put me on that throne, and you're willing, you're going to take up that cross. You're going to, Luke would say, take up that cross daily. And then, once you've done that, you're able to leave that behind, and you're able to begin to follow after Jesus. And so, 
And he gives a little bit more clarification. If we, if we try to do it our own way, we're going to lose our lives. But if we are willing to go his direction, we're willing to lose our lives, we're going to save it. Because there's nothing in this world that we can give that will save ourselves. It's only God. And so, Jesus gives that clarification of where we need to be as the people of God. So let me turn the page. One of the calls that we have is we're supposed to be with Jesus. And that's, I remember as a, a brand new baby Christian, and I still get into the Word on a daily basis, but I remember reading Scripture and just devouring Scripture, and especially going to the Gospels and thinking, how did Jesus react in this situation? And what did He do here? And actually, even before I was baptized into Christ, I had never read my New Testament before. I had fallen in love with Jesus. And as I've gotten closer and closer and understand Him more and more, I think I've had to go through a reorientation of asking, where do I see my Lord going? What do I hear Him saying? What do I remember? And how has that changed my understanding? And so I might see the same situation, the same information out there that I used to see, but I've got a new way of recognizing and thinking through it and remembering and understanding. And so I want us to just think about this idea from Mark 8:34 of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. All of us have a death prediction. Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4 speaks of our baptism. That we were buried with Christ through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. When we made a decision to follow after Jesus and we proclaimed, Jesus is Lord, and we went down in that watery grave of baptism, we participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That, that is what breaking of bread each first day of the week is so important. There are so many things in our walk with Christ that just keep going back to the death, burial, and resurrection. Our baptism goes back to the death, burial, and resurrection. The breaking of bread goes back to the death, burial, and resurrection. All this is helping us see we're not going to do this on our own. But God has given us a death prediction. Now, we sometimes misunderstand it. Romans also, in Romans chapter 12, will say that we're to be living sacrifices. The problem with the living sacrifice is we like to crawl off the altar. Uh, then we get up there and it's like, oh, this is a little bit tougher than I expected. And so we want to do our own thing and to go our own way. I think sometimes for young Christians, there's a misunderstanding that this is supposed to solve all of my problems. And maybe that's even for older Christians. This is supposed to solve all of my problems. That's not the case. It gives us strength to work through all of our problems, but it doesn't solve all of our problems. And so as we come to Christ, we understand that He's going to give us the strength for whatever is in front of us. There's no temptation that sees you except what is common to man. And when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God, God's going to be at work in here. So just because life gets tough, church gets tough, didn't we say, I'm denying myself, I'm taking up my cross, and I'm following after Jesus. And so there becomes a clarification in our lives. 
One of the ways that clarification can come into our lives is, well, let me back up and say it a different way. There will be events and circumstances in our life that will, as we go through it, will either increase our spiritual influence or decrease our spiritual influence. When, we're, when we struggle with certain things, it either, as, as we've been faithful to God, it increases our ability to follow God and our spiritual influence, and you might call that leadership. Or, if, as I would, and there's some writers that talk about this idea, if, so God gives us some tests, and if we fail the test, we'll have to retake it. <laughs> we have to retake it. Usually it's a little tougher test the second time, so we can get it into our mind. But, Clarification. Let me just talk about three areas that I think God uses for clarification in our life. One is a crisis. It could be sickness. It could be somebody's death. It could be a horrible, horrible thing that happens in our lives, but it's a crisis situation. And I believe in those crisis situations, God is clarifying, if we'll listen, and if we'll hear, and if we'll see, and we'll understand, that he is able to redeem that and bring honor and glory to himself. Let me give you an example in, from Great Falls. We've got a lady in the congregation, and we, we're, we're taking through, an, we've got about 15% of the congregation that's gone through this. It's about a year journey, but it, it's leadership emergence, and where you you meet with people that you trust. You look at what God's been involved in the entire narrative of your life. You write a narrative and then you share it and reflect what's God at work. Well, this sister, as she went through this, it came out that she had been abused as a child. Sexually abused as a child. But when she finished it, and she shared it with those people, and she'd have no problem with me sharing. In fact, she t told me, said, tell that story as much as you want. She began to reflect and say, that was evil. There's no good in it. But how is God redeeming it? A crisis situation. I would say if that, any crisis, that's going to be a crisis. But how is God going to redeem that crisis? And what she has begun is she has begun a healing ministry for other women. She is taking that evil that happened and she is allowing God to redeem it. And she started a ministry called Journey to Heal. And a number of sisters have now gone through it in Great Falls and others are even saying, teach me how to help other women to heal. It's, it's, a situ it's a crisis, but she's allowed God to redeem it. And now all of a sudden she's saying, you know, here's a clarification. God doesn't want me to just be ashamed of that. He wants me to see how that's been redeemed and how I can glorify God through it. And so when we go through crisis situations... See where God's at work. Because our God is, a, if, if He can redeem the evil of the death of His own Son, He can redeem whatever is going on in our lives. It doesn't mean it's good, but He can redeem it. Another one is conflict. <laughs> we even get in conflict with ourselves. <laughs> but there are conflict situations within congregations and even with, we see it between Jesus and Peter. Get behind me, Satan. It's a conflict scenario. But I think that what Peter does is he reflects upon this because if I understand right, 
Mark is writing the reflections of Peter. When you read some of the extra biblical literature and, and how the Gospel of Mark came about, it seems that what Mark is writing is what Peter had shared. And Peter has obviously reflected upon this enough and said, there was a conflict situation between me and the Lord. I told him, you, you shouldn't, you know, this is wrong. And he's told me, get behind me, Satan. That would tell me that in that conflict situation, Peter eventually saw it and he began to understand that we can't just do it our way. We need to submit to God. And so if you're in a conflict scenario, biblically have the right attitudes, but reflect what's God accomplishing here. And the last one that I think is helpful for us to to evaluate our own lives is the idea of isolation. Isolation is oftentimes a time where God is, is transforming us and helping us to become the people that we're called to become. Isolation can sometimes be from an illness that when our, we're on our own. It could be that you're, you're off on your own at a job site or something like that, but you don't have all the other junk just sort of bubbling up in your ears and taking away your distractions. But it's out of isolation a lot of times where we're transformed. And I'll, I'll use our own, our son Joel. He went to South Dakota State University, ran track there. There's a small congregation in Brookings, South Dakota. And he was the only college kid. There was somebody about his age, a single guy that worked someplace else, but he was the only university student. And he was sharing with me, he said, Dad, it happened that, you know, I missed one Sunday, and then I missed the next Sunday, and I missed the next Sunday, and the, that fourth Sunday I woke up and I said, this isn't who I am. This is not who I am. I am a child of God, and I need to be with the people of God. But isolation was that crucible moment in his life that said, it's not my mom and dad's faith anymore. It's my faith, and this is who I am. And the isolation is what brought that out. If he would have been around a big group of Christians and, and just gone along with them, I don't think that message would have gotten through with the same power that it did because he was in isolation. And so I, I, I'm saying that sometimes God is going to clarify what it means to follow after him through the tough times in our life. And, and so rather than seeing just an image from one perspective, try to look at it from another angle and say, what's God at work doing here? Great example of that, if you want to do a, a study through it, is look at Joseph. I mean, he, he's sold by his brothers. Uh, he is then falsely accused of rape. He is sent to prison. He's finally elevated to number two. And when his brothers come back, and they finally figure out who he is, what's going to happen is Joseph says, God sent me. Joseph is thinking through all of this. I mean, he's got a crisis, he's got conflict, he's got isolation, he's got all of them going on. And he's able to say, God sent me, it's for the saving of many lives. After their father comes to Egypt, it's 17 years. 17 years that his brothers should have been able to get the idea, been able to look and understand and see what's God been doing. But when their dad dies... They go to Joseph, basically throw themselves at his feet. Don't, you know, have mercy on us. 
His brothers did not process the same information. They had the same information, but they didn't process it the same way that Joseph did. Joseph saw that God was at work sending him there in a crisis and a conflict and isolation to save many lives. And his brothers around him didn't see that. It takes work on our part. We can't just sort of walk through life in a general way. If we're going to see God clarifying what's going on, we need to pay attention. And so what do we, as we look at our own lives, what do we see? What do we see God doing? What do we hear from His Word? Maybe from some other brother or sister who shares something. Oh, when we're in this next tough situation, what do we remember how God has taken us through? What have we come to understand about the goodness and the character of God? And when we see that, when we maybe see the same information as somebody else, but now all of a sudden we see it through the lens of Jesus, we can live. We can become all that God has called us to be and we can live for His honor and glory. My purpose in this sermon is just to encourage us, even in the tough situations of life, see God at work and live for His glory. If you have a need today, need to become a Christian or need our prayers, why don't you come? As together we're going to stand and sing.